Chapter Eight of Bunker Bean by Harry Leon Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the following afternoon, among the Sunday throng in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a slender young man of inconsiderable stature, alert as to movement, but with an expression of absent dreaming, might have been observed giving special attention to the articles in those rooms devoted to ancient Egypt. Doubtless, however, no one did observe him more than casually, for though of singularly erect carriage, he was garbed inconspicuously in neutral tints, and his behavior was never such as to divert attention from the surrounding spoils of the archaeologist. Had his mind been as an open book, he would surely have become a figure of interest. His mental attitude was that of a professional beau of acknowledged preeminence. He was comparing the self at home in the mummy case with the remnants of defunct pharaohs here exposed under glass, and he was sniffing in spirit at their lack of kingly dignity and their inferior state of preservation. Their wooden casers were often marred, faded, and broken. Their shrouding linen was frayed and stained. Their features were unimpressive and in too many instances shockingly incomplete. They looked very little like kings, and the laudatory recitals of their one-time greatness, translated for the contemporary eye, seemed to be only the vaporings of third-class pugilists. Sneering openly at a damaged pharaoh of the fourth dynasty, he reflected that some day he would confer upon that museum a relic transcending all others. He saw it enshrined in a room by itself. It should never be demeaned by association with those rusty cadavers he saw about him. This would be when he had passed on to another body, in accordance with the law of karma. He would leave a sum to the museum authorities, specifically to build this room, and to it would come thousands for a glimpse of the superior Ram Tah, last king of the pre-dynastic period, surviving in a state calculated to impress every beholder with his singular merits. Ram Tah, cheated of his place in history's pantheon, should here at last come into his own, serene, beauteous, majestic, looking every inch a king, where mere pharaohs looked like, like the coffee-stained, untidy fragments they were. He left the place in a tolerant mood. He had weighed himself with the other great dead of the world, that night he sat again before this old king, staring until he lost himself, staring as he had before stared into the depths of his shell. The shell, when he had looked steadily at it for a long time, had always seemed to put him in close touch with unknown forces. He had once tried to explain this to his Aunt Clara, who understood nearly everything, but his effort had been clumsy enough and had brought her no enlightenment. You look into it, and it makes you feel was all he had been able to tell her. But the shell was now discarded for the puissant person of Ram Tah. The message was more pointed. He drew power from the old dead face that yet seemed so living. He was himself a wise and good king. No longer could he play the coward before trivial adversities. He would direct large affairs. He would live big. Never again would he be afraid of death, or breed, or policeman, or the mockery of his fellows, or women. He might still avoid the latter, but not in terror, only in a dignified dread lest they talk and spoil it all. He would choose in due time a worthy consort, 
and a certain crown prince would in further due time startle the world with his left-handed pitching it was a prospect all golden to dream upon his spirit grew tall and its fibre toughened to be sure he did not achieve a kingly disregard for public opinion all in one day there was the matter of that scarlet cravat monday morning he excavated it from the bottom of the trunk where it lay beside napoleon man and lover he even adjusted it carelessly pretending that it was just any cravat the first that had come to hand but its color was still too alarming it so he usually thought of the great ram tah would have worn the cravat without a tremor but it had been born a king one glance at the thing about his neck had vividly recalled the awkward circumstance that to the world at large he was still bunker bean a youth incapable of flaunt or flourish let it not be thought however that his new growth showed no result above ground he purchased and wore that very morning a cravat not entirely red it is true but one distinguished by a narrow red stripe on a backing of bronze which the clerk who manoeuvred the sale assured him was tasty also he commanded a suit of clothes of a certain light check in which the bean of uninspired days would never have braved public scrutiny such were the immediate and actual fruits of ram tah's influence there were other effects perhaps more subtle performing his accustomed work for breed that day he began to study his employer from the kingly or ram tah point of view he conceived that breed in the time of ram tah would have been a steward a keeper of the royal granaries a dependable accountant a good enough man in his lowly station but one who could never rise his laxness in the manner of dress was seen to be ingrained an incurable defect of soul in the time of ram tah he had doubtless worn the egyptian equivalent for detached cuffs and he would be doing the like for a thousand incarnations to come all too plainly breed's karmic future promised little of interest his degree of ascent in the human scale was hardly perceptible bean was pleased at this thought it left him in a fine glow of superiority and sharpened his relish for the mad jest of their present attitudes a jest demanding that he seemed to be breed's subordinate naturally this was a situation that would not long endure it was too preposterous money came not only to kings but to the kingly he troubled as little about details as would have any other king were there not steel kings and iron kings railway kings oil kings money kings he thought it was not unlikely that he would first engage the world's notice as an express king he had received those fifty shares of stock from aunt clara and regarded them as a presage of his coming directorship but he took no pride in this thought baseball was to be his life work he would own one major league team at least perhaps three or four he would be known as the baseball king and the world would forget his petty triumphs as a director of express he deemed it significant that the present directors of that same federal express company one day held a meeting in breed's office it showed he thought how life worked around the thing was coming to his very door with considerable interest he studied the directors as they came and went most of them like breed were men whose wealth the daily press had a habit of estimating in rotund millions he regarded them knowingly thinking he could tell them something that might surprise them but they passed him all unheeding moneyed-looking men of 
good round girth who seemed to have found the dollar game worthwhile the most of them he was glad to note were in dress slightly more advanced than breed one of them a small but important-looking old gentleman with a purple face and a white parted beard became on the instant bean's ideal for correctness from his gray spats to his top hat he was dignified yet different although dressing for example in a more subdued key than bulger although dressing for example in a more subdued key than bulger yet he was a constantly indignant-looking old gentleman and bean guessed that he would be a troublemaker on any board of directors it seemed to him that he would like to take this person's place on the board oust him in spite of his compelling garments and breed would know then that he was something more than a machine on the whole he felt sorry for breed at times perhaps he would let him have a little of the baseball stock so he sat and dreamed of his great past and of his brilliant future perhaps after all being as the blind poet had been not the least authentic of balthazar's visions and inevitably he encountered the flapper in this dreaming chubbins he liked to call her more and more he was suspecting that tommy hollins was not the man for chubbins he would prefer to see her the bride of an older man two or three or even four years older who was settled in life a young girl a young girl's parents couldn't be too careful he was not for many days at a time deprived of the sight of the young girl in question she had formed a habit of calling for her father at the close of his day's hard work and she did not wait for him in the big car she sat in his office where after she had inquired solicitously about his poor foot she settled her gaze upon bean and bean no longer evaded this gaze she was a clever attractive little thing and he liked her well he thought of things he would tell her for her own good at the first opportunity he wondered guiltily when breed's next attack might be expected and he had a lively impression that the flapper too was more curious than alarmed about this he seemed to feel that she was actually wishing to be told things by him for her own good however that may be his next summons to the country place came without undue delay and it is not at all improbable that breed fell a victim to what the terminology of one of our most popular cults identifies as malicious animal magnetism on this occasion he was not oppressed by those attentions which the flapper and grandma the demon still bestowed upon him where he had once fled he now put himself in the way of them he listened with admirably simulated interest to grandma's account of the suffrage play for which she was rehearsing she was to appear in the mob scene he was certain she would lend vivacity to any mob but he was glad that the flapper was not to appear voting and smashing windows were bad enough he tried to, at first to talk to the flapper about tommy hollins whom he airily designated as that hollins boy it seemed to be especially needed because the hollins boy arrived after breakfast every day and left only in the afternoon but the flapper declined nevertheless to consider him as meat for serious converse being considered that this was sheer flirting whereupon he flung principal to the winds and flirted himself you show signs of life declared grandma who was quick to note this changed demeanour and being smirked like a man of the world she never set her mind on anything yet that she didn't get added grandma naming no one she's like her father there 
and bean strolled off to enjoy a vision of himself defeating her purpose to ensnare the holland's youth once he would have considered it crass presumption but that was before a certain sarcophagus on the left bank of the nile had been looted of its imperial occupant now he merely recalled a story about a king cofetua and a beggar maid and it was a comparison that would have intensely interested the flapper's mother who was this time regarding bean through her glazed weapon as he were some queer growth the head gardener had brought from the conservatory grandma deftly probed his past for affairs of the heart she pointedly had him alone and her intimation was that he might talk freely as to a woman of understanding and broad sympathy but bean made a wretched mess of it certainly there had been affairs there was the girl in chicago two doors down the street whom he had once taken to walk in the park but only once but she talked the girl in the business college who had pretty hair and always smiled when she looked at him and another who he was almost sure had sent him an outspoken valentine yes there had been plenty of girls but he hadn't bothered much about them grandma plainly incredulous averred that he was too deep for her bean was on the point of inventing a close acquaintance with an actress which he considered would be scandalous enough to compel a certain respect he seemed to find lacking in the old lady but he saw quickly that she would confuse and trip him with a few questions he was obliged to content himself with looking the least bit smug when she said you're a deep one too deep for me he tried to look deep and at least as depraved as the conventions of good society seemed to demand he was beginning to enjoy the sinful thing the girl was of course plighted to the hollands boy and yet she was putting herself in his way very well he would teach her the danger of playing with fire he would bring all of his arts and wiles to bear true in behaving thus he was conscious of falling below the moral standards of a wise and good king who had never stooped to baseness of any sort but he was now living in a different age and somehow i'm a dual nature he thought and he applied to himself another phrase he seemed to recall from his reading of magazine stories i've got the artistic temper this he gathered was held to explain if not justify many departures from the conventional in affairs of the heart it was a kind of licensed madness endowed with the artistic temper you were not held accountable when you did things that made people gasp that was it that was why he was carrying on with tommy holland's girl and not caring what happened in his times of leisure they walked through the shaded aisles of those too well-kept grounds or they sat in seats of twisted iron and honored the setting sun with their notice they did not talk much yet they were acutely aware of each other sometimes the silence was prolonged to awkwardness and one of them would jestingly offer a penny for the other's thoughts this made a little talk but not much and sometimes increased the awkwardness it was so plain that what they were thinking of could not be told for money they did tell their wonderful ages and their full names and held their hands side by side to note the astonishing differences between the lines a palmist had revealed something quite amazing to the flapper but she refused to tell what it was with a significance that left bean in a tumultuous and pleasurable whirl of cowardice their hands flew apart rather self-consciously bean felt himself a scoundrel leading on a young thing like that who was engaged to another it was flirting of the most reprehensible sort 
but there was his dual nature a strain of the errant corsican had survived to debauch him and if she didn't want to be led on he thought indignantly why did she so persistently put herself in the way of it she was always there serve her right then serve the hollands boy right too grandma eyed them shrewdly with her demon's glance of questioning but did nothing to keep them apart on the contrary she would often brazenly leave them together after conducting them to remote nooks she made no flimsy excuses she seemed indifferent to the fate of this tender bud left at the mercy of one whom she affected to regard as a seasoned roue there were four days of this regrettable philandering on the fifth breed manifested alarming symptoms of recovery he ceased to be the meek man he was under actual suffering and was several times guilty of short-worded explosions that should never have reached the ears of good women said the flapper in tones of genuine dismay that evening i'm afraid pops is going to be well enough to go to town to-morrow even grandma pacing a bit of choice turf near at hand rehearsing her lines in the mob scene was shocked at this you are a selfish pig she called but he will have to go away if pop goes said the flapper in magnificent extenuation the words told grandma seemed to see things in a new light you come with me she commanded both of you ahead of them she led the way to that pergola where bean had once overheard their talk sit down said grandma and herself sat between them you are a couple of children she began accusingly why when i was your age she broke off suddenly and for some moments stared into the tracery of vines when i was your age she began once more but in a curiously altered voice lord what a time of years she spoke slowly softly as one who would evoke phantoms why at your age she turned slightly to the flapper i'd been married two years and your father was crawling about under my feet as i did the housework she was still looking intently ahead to make her vision alive what a time of years and how different sixty years ago why it seems farther back than noah's ark the log cabins and the little clearings and people marrying when they wanted to always early and working hard and raising big families i was the only girl but i had nine brothers and jim your father's father my dear i remember the very moment he began to take notice of me coming out of the log church one sabbath he only looked at me that was all and i had to pretend i didn't know then he came nights and sat in front of the big open fire with all of us at first but after a little the others would climb up the ladder to the loft and leave us and we'd maybe eat a mince pie that i'd made i was a good cook at sixteen and there would be a pitcher of cider and outside the wind would be driving the snow against the tiny window panes i can hear that sound now and the sputtering of the backlog and jim oh well she waved the scene back when we were married jim had his eighty acres all cleared a yoke of nice fat steers a cow two pigs and a couple of sheep not much but it seemed enough then the furniture was homemade the tableware was tin plates and pewter spoons and horn-handled knives and a set of real china that pa and ma gave us that was for company and a feather bed and patchwork quilts i'd made and a long-barreled rifle and the best coon dog jim said uh, in the whole of york state oh well bean became aware that the old lady had grasped his hand and he divined that she was also holding a hand of the flapper and my such excitement you never did see when little jim came we began to save right off to send him to a good seminary 
we were going to make a preacher out of him and see the way he's turned out lord what would his father make of this place and our little jim if he was to come back i lost him before we got to see many changes in the world i remember we did go to a party in fredonia one time where a woman from buffalo wore a low-necked gown and jim never got over it he swore to the day of his death that any woman who'd wear a dug-out dress was a hussy he didn't know what the world could be coming to when they allowed such goings on poor jim i was still young when he went and of course but i couldn't i had had my man and i'd had my baby and somehow i was through i wanted to learn more about the world and little jim was growing up and had a nice situation in the store at fredonia working early and late sleeping under the counter and saving his fifty dollars clear every year i knew he'd always provide for me dear me how i run on where was i bean's hand was released and grandma rose to her feet turning to look down upon them i forgot what i started to say but maybe it was this that the world hasn't changed so much as folks often think i get to watchin young people sometimes it seems as if they were like the young people in my day and i think any young man that's steady and decent has a good situation what i mean is this that he well it depends on the girl as it always did the pair on the bench were inattentive they had instinctively drawn together but they were silent in bean's mind was a confusion of matters breed sleeping under a counter people in log cabins getting married the best coon dog in york state a yoke of nice fat steers but beneath this was a sharpened consciousness of the girl breathing at his side she seemed curiously to be waiting waiting the silence and their stillness became unbearable something must break their breaths were too long drawn he got to his feet and the flapper was unaccountably standing beside him it was too dark to see her face but he knew that for once she was not looking at him for once that head was bent and then preposterously without volition without foreknowledge he was holding her tightly in his arms holding her tightly and kissing her with a simple directness that napoleon man and lover could never have bettered there was no record of napoleon having studied jiu-jitsu for one frenzied moment he was out of himself a mere conquering male unthinking ruthless exigent then the sweet strange touch of her cheek brought him back to the awful thing he had done his reason worked with a lightning quickness terrified by his violence she would wrench herself free and run screaming to the house and then it was too horrible he waited breathless for retribution the flapper did not wrench herself away slowly he relaxed the embrace that had made a brute of him the flapper had not screamed she was facing him now breathless herself he put her a little away from him he wanted her to see it as he did the flapper drew a long and rather catchy breath then she adjusted a strand of hair misplaced by his violence i knew it she began in tones surprisingly cool i knew it ever so long ago from the very first moment he tried to speak but he had no words his utterance was formless when did you first know she persisted she was patting her hair into place with both hands he didn't know he didn't know that he knew now but recalling her speech he had overheard he had the presence of mind to commit a soulful perjury from the very first he lied glibly something went over me just like that i can't tell you how but i knew 
you made me so afraid of you confessed the flapper i never meant to couldn't help it i'm horribly shy but i knew it had to be i felt powerless i know he sympathized our day has come roared grandma from out of the gloom we know our rights we've broken glass we break heads this was followed by ar har har meant for sinister growls of rage it seemed to be the united voice of the mob they drew apart once more self-conscious they walked slowly out past the mob scene which ignored them and went with awkward little hesitations up the wide walk to the breed portal to bean's suddenly cooled eye the vast gray house towered above him as a menace he had a fear that it might fall upon him at the entrance they stood discreetly apart bean wondered what he ought to say his sense of guilt was overwhelming but the flapper seemed clear-headed enough you leave it to me she said as if he had confided his perplexity to her leave it all to me i've always managed yes said bean meaning nothing whatever she made little movements that suggested departure she was regarding him now with the old curious look that had puzzled him you're just as perfectly nice as i knew you were she announced with an obvious pride in this bit of proved wisdom good night from a distance of five feet she bestowed the little double nod upon him and fled good night he managed to call after her then he was aware that he had wanted to call her chubbins he liked that name for her if he could only have said good night chubbins for that matter he basely wanted again to but he thought with shame that he had done enough for once a pretty night's work indeed if breed ever found it out when he left with breed in the morning she was on the tennis court brazenly she engaged in light conversation across the net with no other than thomas hollins jr she did not look up as the car passed the court though he knew she knew something in the poise of her head told him that he didn't wonder she couldn't face him in the light of day he smiled bitterly in scorn for the betrayed tommy End of chapter eight